Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 921. At the start of the show, David Lorela is joined by Marley Rivera, writer and reporter for ESPN, and Lars Anderson, former major leaguer and bona fide renaissance man. The trio discuss the overwhelming booing of the Astros at Yankee Stadium, as well as the impact of Alex Cora's return to Boston, and how a manager must have the team's respect to be influential. Marley and Lars also both have Mariano Rivera stories to share before offering serious perspectives on things like women reporters in clubhouses and the politics of vaccinations among players. Finally, the trio comments on Manny Ramirez tweeting about his interest in the Mets hitting coach gig. He would definitely do some crowdsourcing for that job. Manny will ask like the hot dog vendor what he thinks about his swing, and I'm like, dude, you're Manny Ramirez. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about like he will ask anybody that like walking down the street he'll be like hey what do you think about this bro and like show you what he's doing with his hand like he'll ask anybody about his swing it's so bizarre and we're, people look at him like dude you hit like 600 home runs in the movies why are you asking me about hitting in the second half eric longenhagen welcomes baseball america's bill mitchell back to the program now both vaccinated, Eric and Bill have been getting back out to the fields in Arizona to see minor league spring training, and it has been a welcome readjustment. The duo discuss how nice it is to be on the field again, and some of the best players they've seen out there recently, as well as ones they hope to see in extended spring training. Eric and Bill also dig into the effects of the long time off for many of these players, which so far has included some impressive velocity. That's the, th- the comment I got from scouts most often, is how many pitchers were coming in throwing... 95 or above where you know they've they had to redo their reports what they wrote on this picture even a year ago or two years ago they had to redo the reports uh that's the amazing thing and fangraphs audio is brought to you by our listeners and supporters if you enjoy the podcast or the multitude of other things we offer at the website consider a donation or an ad-free membership over at fangraphs.com our merch page also includes some new t-shirt designs that are certainly worth checking out if you haven't already I must also remind you to check out the return of the Fangraphs newsletter. It is a great recap on weekdays of what is going on at the site, including features you may not have realized we offered. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guests on this segment are Marley Rivera, national baseball writer for ESPN, and Lars Anderson, former big leaguer, co-founder of Birdman Bats, writer, music producer, on and on. Uh, Lars, I guess we could probably call you a man of the world. <laughs> is, is, is that fitting? Well, aren't we all men and women and people of the world? But yeah, I've had a, a baseball is wonderful in the sense that it's provided me an opportunity to see a bunch of places in this country and also play overseas and see, like you said, uh, more of the world on an international level. It's been great. Oh, and we will very much talk about that in, in a little bit. Uh, I should maybe say, Marley, that yes. We should probably call you a woman of the world. Uh, I think you've gotten around. I, I don't mean that in a bad way. <laughs> I was going to say, well, I do. But I think they're going to, but I think they're going to mute me on that one. <laughs> so the, your part of the world right now is covering the Yankees Astros series. Yes. We are talking right now on Wednesday. 
And from what I can tell, Marley, that series, that Yankee Stadium is is a bit of a hot mess. Is that accurate? I think that's a perfect way to describe it. Uh, first of all, I'm sorry that I don't have some very cool intro the way Lars does, because I am not a Renaissance woman. So I basically just write about baseball and cover it, and that's about it. But um, that's, the, that's the extent of my life. But at this point, it seems to be about the Astros once again. I mean, I, I know that both of you remember clearly, you know, when, you know, before ahead of the 2020 spring training, there was no bigger story in baseball, right? That the Astros signed stealing scandal and then the pandemic hit, right? And then, you know, everything went, you know, by the wayside and it has been so different. But, you know, the Astros are still the story. The stadium was incredible. I've covered the Yankees, you know, for close to 20 years and I have never, ever, even in the height of Red Sox-Yankees lore, I have never heard incessant booing the way that I did for Carlos Correa and Jose Altuve. Wow. Never. <laughs> and and that is with a small crowd because of COVID protocols. Precisely, David. And and one thing that the Astros may be lucky in having is that uh, Governor Cuomo announced, you know, today, Wednesday, that New York is going to ease uh, COVID protocols. And now that, you know, people who are vaccinated can sit in groups and they're going to ease a lot of restrictions. So they're going to be a lot more than the ten to 12,000 fans that were in the Bronx last night and are going to be there uh, tonight and tomorrow. And it's also just kind of... It's really amazing how long these fans have been waiting to do this. There was, you know, it was a little tame because there was nothing thrown on the field. You know, the Yankees were attacked by their own fans, even worse than they attacked uh, the Astros. But um, it, it was, let's just say it was interesting. It was definitely a playoff atmosphere. Oh, for sure. Uh, Lars, your big league career was fairly short in duration, but you did play several games at Yankee Stadium in a Red Sox uniform. What are your memories of that? Yeah, I was just gonna say that I was I was kind of laughing at the shortness of my own memory and the length of Yankee fans' memories. Like I had kind of forgotten about the Astros thing. It was kind of on the <laughs> periphery of my mind. And then like yesterday happened, I'm like, oh my god, they didn't forget. But it's it makes sense. Playing in New York was by far the most intense atmosphere out of any stadium I've ever played in. It's mm. like not even close. Playing to like a packed house in New York is unlike anything not and it like playing at fenway in front of a sold out crowd was like great and the energy was great but new york is like a totally different animal like levels levels above that in intensity i remember playing in a game there and this was in september and it we were probably winning by six or eight runs kind of later in the game maybe like the sixth seventh inning and the yankees got a couple hits and i think scored a run and all of a sudden it felt like it was a tied game and like in that moment that the crowd was so intense, we were, we were still like way ahead in the game, but it felt like we were tied. And I like, it just kind of clicked what home field advantage was there for me. Hmm. I was like, wow, this is a really serious advantage playing here because we're killing them still. We're in control of this game, but it does not feel like that. You know, and I, that was very striking for me as a player. Yeah, Marley, you know Alex Cora very well. He is, of yes. course, a big part of that scandal. How much do you think Cora returning to Boston has impacted how well the team has played this year? I know that I, you know, for full disclosure, Alex Cora is my friend, right? So I can't really be completely objective, but I'm going to try to. And one of the things that, and I, and I can, and I can tell you this from actually speaking directly to JD Martinez, to Rafael Devers, to Xander Bogarts, to Kike Hernandez, to Christian Vasquez, like all these guys, because we had a broadcast last week, uh, Red Sox Mets. So I got to be on the field for the first time, right, in a very long time, close to the players, relatively close. We still have to 
to keep social distancing about 15 feet, but I could actually speak to them. And they all told me that it's the return of Alex Cora. And one of the things that Alex does for that clubhouse is that he has that nice balance. And of course, Lars can speak to this a lot better than I can, right? Because I have been in a clubhouse in a different capacity. But he has the pulse of that clubhouse so well that he can play cards with the guys, he can hang out with them, and at the same time, he can scold you with no problem if you did something wrong on the field. And they, they're, the guys want to play for him. They want to win for him. And that those are the kind of you know guys we, we always say – I was talking to Tori Lovello uh, during the pandemic, and he described the role of the manager having changed so much. And he said it is no longer, right, the juror, the jury, and the executioner, right? Like that, that kind of thing. It isn't that – that way it's about managing people and Alex Cora is probably one of the best people manager that I've ever met Aaron Boone is in that category too right like they're these guys who the the guys want to play for uh want to win and and obviously I've never had that I've had great leaders right who have been my boss or you know ladies and women and men who have been my bosses and you want to do well for them but I can't even imagine in that camaraderie of a clubhouse how much that means uh having that leadership in there it's interesting that you mentioned Tori Lavello because I played with him in, in AAA. Oh, and cool. You're you're really right about that, and you referencing like Alex Cora's ability to like hang with the guys, but also like when he needs to get on them to be able to get on them and be heard. And that only works if you're like respected and liked, you know. Mm-hmm. And and that 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 takes time, and it means that like he's doing the right things to kind of earn that respect from the players because like at that level if if the manager is not respected and he's coming down hard on players they kind of just like it's not there's no effect it it doesn't it doesn't really do Mm. what it's intended to do but if you can earn the respect of players and like be good with them then you can when it's time to be like hey you got to run harder on that ball like i can't have you running 70 percent right there it will be heard and not brushed off. So that's like a really important, but like kind of fine tuned clubhouse thing that I think is essential for like a healthy relationship between manager and players. Tori really had that. Like I, mm-hmm. I love playing for him and he was, he was somebody that was like very cool. And I, I wanted to win for, I wanted to play hard for. And there are times when he got like really mad. I, I still remember him blowing up after a, a day game loss where we just got killed. And I was like, wow, he's right. You know, like what, what he said, I didn't I didn't just kind of like shrug it off. I was like, he's he's right. And he cares about us. So like, I'll take that to heart. Right. Tori was uh, a guest on Fangraphs Audio just a few months ago. I should oh, know for anybody who wants to circle circle back to that. Tori has had a lot of success managing the Arizona Diamondbacks, of course. A manager, Lars, that you had at the end of your career, I believe that your last Big league game was with the Red Sox nine years ago this month. Man, does time fly. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> you probably remember that Bobby Valentine was the manager. That team lost 93 games, and things did not go very well in the clubhouse. I don't know if you were there long enough in spring training and the early season to really get a feeling that, that might happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. It didn't take long. <laughs> it was like first week of spring <laughs> training, and it was like, this is, this is going to be problematic. For sure. So I have an interesting, interesting experience with that. You know, like a lot of people really like Terry Francona and enjoyed him as a manager. I, I respect him as a manager and as a guy, but he and I did not like necessarily click. I I never really felt like he liked me. (laughs) And I was like really sensitive as a baseball player. And I just, it it just wasn't like a a great partnership between us. There was nothing like contentious. It just didn't feel like it gelled. 
But Bobby Valentine was like really cool to me. He was nice and friendly and like talked to me. And so like I liked Bobby, but there were there were things that spring was just like this is not probably not gonna work. I think he had managed in Japan and after playing in Japan, like his managing style makes a little more sense. But there were we were doing drills like in spring training, for those who don't know, typically in every place I've ever played other than for Bobby Valentine, like the coaches will hit players ground balls with a fungo bat. Uh Bobby had this idea where he thought it was good for hitters to hit ground balls to the infielders so we're out there one day i'm playing first base on a backfield at like nine in the morning and adrian gonzalez is flipping a ball to david ortiz david ortiz is hitting me a ground ball and i'm like sitting there going what the is happening right now this i got guy i have like 300 million dollars worth of player over there hitting me ground balls like me little lars on this backfield like it was so, it was surreal, you know, like, oh man. And there was stuff like that all spring training and I'm not surprised that it didn't work out, but I, I did have a soft spot for Bobby, I, I must say. He was always one of those guys, Lars, definitely, that, that the guys always have soft spots for. It was the same thing at the Mets. I, I personally had an excellent relationship, you know, with Tito Francona, you know, and John Farrell and so on, but Bobby is special, right? Like, <laughs> Bobby is just, uh, he's one of those guys that you just really, you have a simpatico with and you can't explain it. And he's so funny and he's just really big personality, but that doesn't always work in uh, big media markets, right? You're right. Yeah. Especially, especially <laughs> with, with, with players, you know, yeah. his, his, his style might've worked better with like a really young team, Yes, you know, but just like when you're like yelling at Dustin Pedroia during spring training, it's like, this is, <laughs> this is crazy. This is not going to work. So like a, a veteran older team like that, I don't, I don't think his style was, was a good fit for that as we saw. <laughs> And sticking with uh, personalities and million-dollar players, you both have Manny Ramirez stories. Oh, God, isn't he? He's just delightful. I just want to sit back and listen to Lars tell me stories because obviously my stories, you know, from Manny are from a different perspective, right? Like we just don't have. But uh, the one thing, I just love the fact that he just tweeted to Steve Cohen and nominated himself as the Mets new hitting coach. And that's just, that is talk about Manny being Manny. And that is the definition of Manny being Manny. My, my joy in life, when they started rumoring that Manny was going to uh, be the hitting coach for the, for the Cubs a couple of years ago, as you guys remember, David, I happened to be in the press box in Boston and I called him, you know, to check on this. And Manny, who is a very religious man, gave me an entire sermon did an entire preaching for about 15 minutes. And then at the end, he's like, oh, Marley, I don't really know if I want to move to Chicago or not. So we'll see. That's exactly what he said. <laughs> the entire interview was basically 15 minutes of preaching. And like, eh, I don't really know. Maybe those are just rumors. You know, I'm just being Manny. And Manny was just so, in he embraced that. He just, I had so much fun and I can't count the amount of players, particularly young Latino players that have told me that Manny Ramirez is their favorite player. Like it is just, it, it was a joy to watch. And I'm so glad that right now we have the Ronald Acuna's of the world and these guys that are bringing, you know, kind of that fun back into baseball that Manny really brought. And, and Lars played with Manny on the other side of the world. I know. That's fantastic. Yeah, playing with Manny. and Well, I actually played with him in, in the States too. So it was, mm. I, I played with him in AAA with the, with the Cubs when he got signed to kind of be like a player coach, like Hobby yes. Miles was on that team and like, <laughs> When I signed to play in Japan, I didn't know he was on that team. I didn't know he was still playing. I was like, what is he, like 75 years old at this point? I'm like, what's, the dude, what's going on? <laughs> and I looked at the roster, and 
it said May Ramirez and there was an article and it was so funny because for some reason I was not surprised at all. I was like, that makes sense. I like, I, w- I wasn't shocked that I was like going to be playing with Manny and like independent <laughs> ball in Japan. So that was pretty funny. I didn't know about the hitting coach thing. Oh yeah. See, he just tweeted it today. Uh, oh, Lars, yeah. don't worry. Yeah. He just oh, tweeted yeah, okay. that like, I'm going to be, you know, and tweeting at the owner. So it's fantastic that, uh, that he did that. <laughs> He would definitely do some crowdsourcing for that job. Manny will ask, like, the hot dog vendor what he thinks about his swing. And I'm like, dude, you're Manny Ramirez. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Like, he will ask anybody. Like, walking down the street, he'll be like, hey, what do you think about this, bro? And, like, show you what he's doing with his hand. Like, he'll ask anybody about his swing. It's so bizarre. And People look at him like, dude, you hit, like, 600 home runs in the big leagues. Why are you asking me about hitting? He's a lovely guy. I had a really, really fun time playing with him. And I think it's interesting because, like, I only played with him, like, after everything went down with, like, the positive tests and, like, the traveling secretary brawls and all those things. And he was really soft and really gentle and really kind and just, like, a kind of a teddy bear, you know? Like, so my experience with him was unique, I'm sure, in contrast to those who, who knew him longer, you know, but certainly a a colorful, mercurial individual. <laughs> yeah, let's jump from uh, hitter to pitcher, and, and we'll stick with you, Lars. Who did you face that you recall walking away from the plate thinking, man, this guy is really nasty? Oof. I've been asked that a few times. I guess there's two answers. Number one was this, I don't know if he's still playing, but he's the left-handed reliever named Jake Diekman. He is still playing, yes. Yeah. Okay. I faced him in AAA, and like I'm, I'm not. This is not hyperbole. I don't think I hit a ball like above the label against him. Like he was throwing balls off of my knuckles all the time. I like I, don't, I will never get a hit against this guy. He was so good. And then I faced Mariana Rivera in in spring training one year, and Dave Magadan was a hitting coach, and I was getting ready for my bat, and Mags was like, "Okay, if the ball starts like." out over the plate you're good to swing at it if it starts in the middle of the plate you can't swing at it because it's gonna break your bat and i was like cool thanks for the advice and uh i i had never understood how a guy could throw essentially one pitch to the cutter and be successful and um he threw a pitch that started in the middle i think it was the first pitch and i swung and broke my bat and grounded out to him and i i couldn't not believe how much that ball moved it was like after seeing, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pitches, it was like a completely singular look of a pitch. And yeah, I was just like, I, I get it now. I understand why one pitch would be successful for so long. So that was, that was <laughs> definitely a unique experience. I mean, I, I broke a bat against Mariano Rivera. Like, yay! <laughs> that's almost better than getting a hit against him. It makes more sense. No, I got not. hit by Mariano. <laughs> I got hit by Mariano. He had this uh, pattern by a ball that he threw. He had this pattern that if you were not paying attention during BP, like if you were just a reporter who was just you know not paying attention, he would throw balls at you at your legs and hit you with them. <laughs> so I was standing there and I get this just pelt. And I mean, I'm telling you, I had this huge welt and I go and he looks at me, points at me and goes, life BP. And he's right. He's right. We always have to pay attention during life BP, right? Like it's a, yeah. it's a thing that we should always. So I just love Mariana. And I love that you said that Lars, because one of the things that, and it's kind of full circle right now, because we're talking about the Astros. We started with the Astros. And I remember talking to Jim Crane and asking him, the Astros owner and saying, Jim, then isn't it a distinct advantage if you know what pitch is coming? 
And he just wouldn't really just answer that. And we know Giancarlo Stanton said it last year. He's like, if I knew what pitch was coming in 17, I would hit 80 home runs. But at the same time, you always, most of the time, knew what pitch was coming with Mariano and you didn't know how to hit it. So it really is just amazing. I, I got to cover a lot of Mariano's career, you know, over 10 years of his career. And it really was just baffling to watch these incredible hitters, these guys, you know, just these big, tough guys just look silly. And, and the way that maybe Chapman is making them look now with his splitter. Like, I haven't seen that. You know, a, a, a player looked that silly. Well, Josh Hader did it too. You know, of course, Kenley Jensen, when he was at his peak, and Craig Kimbrell too. You know, there's, there's quite a few closers that we can mention in that list. But particularly making players look so silly, like that for me, it, uh, I haven't seen anything like that since Mariano. No, Marley, you are a bit of a pitching pitcher nerd. I know uh, I am. It's yes. terrible. <laughs> no, no it's, 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 it's a wonderful thing. So it's probably terrible for Lars. <laughs> I know. Sorry, Lars. <laughs> yeah, who, all who, good. who is your all-time favorite pitcher, Marley? Oh, Pedro. I don't think that I can. I, I nice. have to think about that too long. It's just uh, Pedro is the best pitcher I've ever seen live. So I love watching because I didn't get to see Randy Johnson pitch live. I didn't get to cover him. So I've only seen him. I mean, I, I was covering baseball while he was playing, but I never covered him. And one of the things that, you know, I wish I had seen him pitch because every time that I see it on TV, you know, I'm, I'm always very excited about it. I'm just such a nerd. I'll break his pitches down. But uh, Pedro, I just don't think that, you know, that change up, it was just ridiculous. When when the Yankees signed first Davey Garcia and someone told me that this top prospect had a change up like Pedro, I made sure to see like this little kid's every freaking bullpen so I could see it. I still haven't seen it. But I'm, I'm, I'm still hopeful that I'll see a change up like that. Pedro Martinez, just not even, I don't think there's a close second, Dave. <laughs> yeah, I, I was at Fenway years ago as a fan and saw him throw an immaculate inning uh, in the first inning, which always stands out. Uh, I, I think the best actual game that I had seen pitch live, though, is I happened to be in Atlanta when uh, Jose Fernandez uh, shut out the oh. Braves one nothing. He threw eight innings. I forget how many strikeouts, but it was the hitters were reacting like they were high school players. Hmm. That the wow. swings were that were that bad. Wow. That's amazing. That's kind of what you see with the Grom now, right? And hopefully, you know, we'll see Jacob not, you know. This whole, you know, I guess because he's speaking to the media today, hopefully it's good news, right? That is nothing uh, particularly, but Jacob DeGrom is doing that with his swing and misses. The other day when he had, what's it, five innings and 16 swing and misses? I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> like, who does that? It's really, it's really, really impressive to watch. But don't worry, Lars, I, I, I love hitting too. I know that it matters. Uh. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but it's uh, actually, I have a, I'm sorry, Dave, I'm like jumping in because I have a question for Lars and I'm curious what Lars thinks. I was just talking to JD Martinez about hitting and, and we talked for a long time and he told me that pitching has completely changed from the time, you know, even when he was with the Tigers, you know, 10 years ago till now. And he said, right now, pitchers are stuff driven and not player-driven. So they're not pitching to you unless you're like a superstar player, right, that they know you have a weakness. Yeah. They actually just go with their best stuff. Is, is that what you've, what you've seen in the development yeah, of baseball? Sure. I, just, I would just like to point out on the point of hitters versus pitchers, I do have <laughs> one, one career professional win in AA as a Yay! pitcher. So just want to let you know. And the final out was recorded on a knuckleball in the seventh <laughs> inning. Come on. So, there's video of it if you want to check it out. I think <laughs> it's pretty funny. That is outstanding. That is awesome. Yeah, I pitched two innings and I got the win. It was awesome. I, I was like 0 for 7 that game. So it was just a really <laughs> weird game. Anyway, yeah, that's a really good question. And it's 
it reminds me of my experience of going to the big leagues, actually. In AAA, you kind of felt like pitchers, I felt like pitchers were pitching to my weaknesses. Mm. And when I got to the big leagues, it was like I didn't even exist as a hitter. Like they just pit, they just threw whatever they wanted. Like they, they didn't pitch to my weaknesses. They just pitched to their strengths is, was yep. my feeling. They really like, they just attacked with what their best stuff was. I think it kind of makes sense because like there's just so much stacked against you as a hitter. You don't know what's coming unless you're, you know, in some other circumstances that we've covered. <laughs> unless you're in the Houston Astros. <laughs> yeah. You don't know what's coming. There's like a ton of guys out there that'll catch the ball if you do hit it. And like the guy throwing the ball is throwing overhand and he's on a mound. And like, you know, sometimes you can't see because the light's bad. Blow. It's just like there's nothing really going for you as a hitter. And so it kind of makes sense for pitchers to be like, I don't really care like how good this guy is. Like if I throw my best pitch, it doesn't matter, you know? And for the most part, that's true. You know, if a guy executes a, a back foot slider with when he's one and two, that, that looks like a strike and falls off the table. It's like, it doesn't matter how good that hitter is. Like he's not going to do anything with that. Or if a guy throws a, you know, a right below the knees fastball that hits the black on the outer half of the plate, like what, what are you going to do with that? So I think there is some, or I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I, I also think that pitchers are like, I, I haven't been in affiliated baseball since 2016. I watch games now and I don't know how people hit like, you, <laughs> like I, and it, and it changed so much in my career. Like from 2000, in 2007, like no one was throwing a cutter. There were like four guys in the, in a ball throwing cutters. And then like when I left, everyone's throwing a cutter and everyone's throwing like 97 and now people are throwing 101 sinkers, you know, it's like, how are you supposed to hit that? <laughs> you know, it's, it's so it's, I think the pitching has just gotten really, really, really good. And like, if it's so good and you're throwing 101 mile an hour sinkers, like why, why worry about if this guy's good at hitting sinkers? You're, you're, you know, it's just, hmm. it, it makes a lot of sense to me what JD is saying. No, if pitches are nasty enough, all but maybe the best are not going to hit them. But I am thinking here, Lars, of a conversation I had in the Fenway Clubhouse a few years ago with a player. It might have been Jake Bowers. Apologies to Jake if it was not you who told me this. But he said that he would rather not know which pitch is coming. He said that if you told him a slider was coming, he would have trouble hitting it, that he's better if he can simply react does that make sense or is he just a real outlier? I mean, it might make sense for like the first few reps of that, but I think if you give somebody <laughs> a month telling them what's coming, they'll be better for it as a hitter, for sure. I kind of know what he's saying, but like there's a reason that in spring training when the pitchers are telling you what they're throwing, they put an L screen in front of them, you know? <laughs> like it's, That's not by accident. I think like that might just be like, you know, a kind of a, I'm used to not knowing what's coming, so I'd rather not know what's coming situation. I, I, I believe that if you had practice knowing, with, knowing what pitch is coming, it would be beneficial in the long run. Sure. And we are starting to run out of time, but I want to hit on a few more things. Some of the listeners to this podcast may remember the Lars Anderson Discovers Japan and Lars Anderson Discovers Australia series that we ran at Fangrass a few years ago. Those were great stories. So Lars, I don't know that I really want to pull one out of my hat, but what stands out to you that, that you wrote in those stories for us? <laughs> oh man, there's so much, but I, I think the thing that comes to mind is the umpires practicing their calls in the outfield before the game 
<laughs> so the umpires would be in the outfield and like we would do they so they would like kind of get in a circle and practice their safe and out calls and then we would do like uh they called it infield knock which is basically like an infield outfield thing where before the game you know like hit fly balls to the outfielders, throw to cut off, infielders take ground balls, turn double plays, and the umpires would get around the field. Mind you, there's no, like, game happening, and they would practice their safe and out calls and uh, during this, like, practice for us. And then I guess another story was they would we would always have first pitches. In Japan, the first pitch would happen, and the leadoff hitter for the visiting team would go out onto the field and take, a like, a ceremonial swing and miss against the pitch. And one game, I was getting ready for the game, and I noticed that the other team's manager was playing long toss, and he had he was like a former AAA pitcher, this Japanese guy. And I'm like, why is he playing long toss to my? Uh, Asked my my teammate, why is he playing long toss? He's like, oh, he's throwing out the first pitch. And my manager was like this legendary Japanese player in the NPB. For the first pitch, my manager faced their manager in an at bat, like a full on at bat. And um, my manager got a hit on a hanging curveball. I couldn't believe it. It was so bizarre. But anyway, those are the the two things that come to mind. But there's a lot more there. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and you mentioned umpires. Marley, umpires here in the States have maybe not had a, a very good week or maybe season so far. <laughs> Do they ever? <laughs> what is happening there? You know, the the McCutcheon out of the baseline, the, <laughs> yeah. the phantom obstruction call. It's crazy. I know. And just this is the part where I am. It's a little bit tough for me because I'm just such a I have such respect for the work that umpires do. I really, really do. And I think that sometimes, you know, including us in the media, we can be extremely harsh and extremely, you know, and it's. You know what, when they do, because we get for ESPN every time we do a broadcast, we get an umpire breakdown, right? Like of what, you know, what, what they're, how effective they are calling balls and strikes and what they tend to go on the zone and so on. And I can't tell you that most of the ones that we get are excellent. If I was doing that, you know, real time, I have no idea how I would do it. That's just just really how 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 I feel about it. But you know, there are times like home plate umpire uh, at the at the game one of the Yankees Astros series, Jose Navas, who obviously is a you know a rookie and an experienced umpire, got this huge assignment, and we know that it's his next turn at the you know next turn to you know in this umpiring crew. So he is supposed to get the plate. But when you get moments, you know, big games like that, and there were a lot of calls that were really questionable, particularly with balls low and outside. So I just I just really think that. You know, I love me some Angel Hernandez, <laughs> and, I, um, and, and I know that it's difficult for a lot of people out there, but I think that in this era of repetition, you know, and in this era of, of instant gratification, and, you know, we can take pictures, and we can, I know I sound like an old lady here, but like you can do FaceTime, you can do all these things, there's an instant gratification that people seek that, you know, that umpiring doesn't necessarily meet. It's really easy to break down pitches if you have it on StatCast, if you have it in front of you, if you get it super slow-mo with the $500,000 camera that ESPN has so you can see the spin on it. It's really easy to call plays on replay. It's really not that easy to do it on real time. But at the same time, I mean, I am not against uh, umpiring school. I'm not against uh, sending umpires back to the minors. But I think that sometimes we do have to cut them a little slack. No, I agree with you. I was standing outside of the visiting clubhouse at Fenway a few years ago talking to a manager and Angel Hernandez walked by and he had a brief exchange with the manager, you know, within my earshot. 
about a, a call from the night before, and he came off as, as as classy. He may have got the call wrong, but he came <laughs> off he came off as adequately contrite for his possible for error. <laughs> and I appreciate, you know, umpires who go out there, you know, like we saw in the Mets game, right? And that, you know, and that was it Pete Alonso? I think the the the, the batter, you know, who took the hit, come forward or maybe, you know, who took the hit and then the umpire came out came out and said, I made a mistake. Now that's you know, that's it's hard to hear for the other team. It's hard to hear, you know, in that column that you're not going to get that win because, you know, the umpire made a mistake. But, you know, to stand up there and say I was wrong, that ain't easy. You know, more people should practice it. <laughs> yeah, and pitchers very much like wins. Uh, you get uh, former first baseman talking about their, you know, about minor league wins in, in podcasts. <laughs> wins are big. We're going to hit real quickly on two serious subjects and then close with, with something fun. Players by now are used to having female reporters in the clubhouse. Hmm. So that is no longer an issue for anybody. True or false? False. <laughs> do I have to keep speaking? <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's too dangerous for you to do so. Oh, no, no, it's not. I feel very comfortable. Do you guys know? I am, you know what? I'll, I'll qualify it this way. You know, and obviously Lars, as a former big league player, I'll say that 99.999% of big leaguers have treated me with nothing but kindness and respect. So, you know what? I'll say that. But there are the outliers. It has happened to me. But something that people fail to talk about is that I have been more discriminated in a clubhouse by my colleagues, by fellow reporters, my people like that who think of me le of less than than by, than by players. You know, even by Major League Baseball who have thought of me as less than than by players. Now, it is an issue. It is a problem. The difference is that now I'm 45, right? So when I started in my 20s, I was a little bit afraid of it. Now, you know what? If I go up to you and I ask you about your, just to use Lars's uh, you know, Lars's example, you know, I ask you about your 97 mile an hour sinker, you know, and you come back to me and ask me for my phone number, I would look at you and say, I want to talk about your sinker. So if you don't have time for that, I'm going to go now. And, and it is, you know, there's a balance in which if you are entering this business, right? And this is a very, very hard business. If you're entering this business for the right reasons, which isn't to be on TV, right? <laughs> it isn't to that kind of stuff. Then you have to take what comes with it. And what comes with it is a male environment. It's a testosterone driven environment. And you have to roll with the punches and players love teasing you and testing you all the time. So there is that one side, right? And then the other side is that there is clear harassment. And I have seen it happen, you know, to, to some of my, you know, women colleagues, but you know, it, it, this isn't new. Like every time I hear a story, I was talking to some of my friends who, who were part of a recent story with the Mets and Katie Strang, who's a dear, dear friend of mine and a fabulous reporter uh, for The Athletic in Detroit. And, you know, I was telling Katie, you know, I hear all these stories and I'm just bored. David, I'm not kidding. That was my answer. I'm bored. Like this doesn't happen. It continues to happen. But I quite honestly, I think that because I'm older now, I, I, I know how to handle it a lot better. So I, I think with the with the younger women, I'm a little bit more worried about them and I'm more than happy to uh, to give them some advice. But now, you know what? I'll say it, you know, not very PG. Uh, you know, I don't put up with any <laughs> shit. So if you're, if you're going to bring some shit to me, then you better be able to take it back. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Any thoughts on this, Lars? I want to hear. I was always really, I, I loved it when there were female reporters around. Basically, like, you're just so saturated with, masculine like dude energy all the time it's like mm -hmm. oppressive at some points and so it's really nice to like have 
another perspective and another vibe in the clubhouse and just like be able to talk to a woman you know it's like it, you're just you're talking to like almost 100 percent guys all the time yeah. so that that gets pretty like monochromatic you see I, I appreciate that lars because i feel that one of the things that i did in the beginning of my career and a lot of women do and i see it happen now is that you want to be one of the guys and i don't want to be one of the guys i have four brothers you know i grew up with yeah, this yeah, yeah. i actually have to embrace who i am and i am the one who would come up to you i mean lars do you have any children yourself i don't know uh, so i'll be the one who would ask you about you know your significant other or your children because that's not a conversation you feel comfortable with another dude unfortunately you should right yeah. but it's like but it's like I'd, I'd love to ask about things that are you know quote unquote proper for women to ask which is really stupid but it's just that things that guys feel more comfortable talking to women about and i and i use that to my advantage and i and i stop trying to be one of the guys and just embrace you know what you bring in which is exactly what you said you know i'm a woman and i have a different perspective period yeah, yeah, and I, I always found that to be refreshing. Yeah, so one other uh, clubhouse question, and this is to you, Lars, as you have been in big league and minor league clubhouses. MLB, a lot of teams haven't reached the 85% vaccination mm -hmm. rate needed to relax COVID protocols. Does that surprise you in the least bit? I actually just got my second shot yesterday. I'm feeling a little sick right now, but uh, I'm all right. <laughs> Does that surprise me in terms of like uh, like a political stance against it? Right, that some players have been reluctant to get the vaccine. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> uh, no, no. Uh, I had, I mean, just a general overview without going into too many details. I was, I was often the the only person in a conversation in the clubhouse with anywhere near liberal viewpoints on things and so there are there are some like i don't know if that like relates to vaccinations but it, it does kind of seem to like go in line with like who wants to get vaccinated and who doesn't and so no I'm, I'm not surprised by that but i have to say just in the political sphere i played with people who i shared really no social values with or political values with or very few but i think what's great about a clubhouse I heard Colin Coward talk about this. He put it really eloquently. And it essentially is that the United States and the world at large, particularly the United States, could learn a lot from about the politics of a clubhouse and the, the way a clubhouse operates is that you're in a room with people that you might not agree with politically or with their social views or with their moral views or their ethics. But it's a place where you can have disagreements and still like cooperate with each other and still support each other and still listen to each other and not just write each other off. I really love that about a clubhouse where I could, I could talk to a really super, I could debate a super conservative guy that I don't necessarily like, agree with politically, but when we go out on the field, like that's my brother, I'm supporting him. I'm fighting for him. And like at the end of the day, we are pulling in the same direction. And I've, I, I wish that this country could have an experience like that where you know, there's a person who doesn't agree with you. It doesn't mean that they have to be your enemy. You, know, you can still find, a, find common ground and find a way to kind of pull in the same direction. And that, that would be a, a huge wish for me for, for people to be able to experience that. And I think it's within reach, but I do, I do really appreciate the diversity of thought and a, you know, professional clubhouse. Because uh, it definitely challenged me. It made me see other sides of issues that I hadn't previously considered, you know, coming from Northern California and hippie parents that and it would expose me to the world in a, in a cool way that I've, I feel like has made me a more empathetic person. Yeah. Have you got your hair cut since the uh, pandemic, Lars? 
I have, <laughs> yes. I, I, I was cutting it on my own for a while, but then I finally got I had a professional do it, you know? Uh, are you yeah. adding hairdresser to your list of many talents, Lars? <laughs> I don't know. I, I did that a long time. Daniel Bard taught me how to cut my hair in double A. This is a true story. I'll, this is I, an I outstanding him, story. You have to tell us this. I saw him cutting. I walked into the, to the bathroom and he's cutting his hair. I'm like, dude, you cut your own hair. Your hair always looks like reasonably good. He's like, yeah, I've been doing it for years. Here, let me show you how to do it. So he like, gave me a few tips. And I didn't get a hair. I didn't pay for a haircut for like ten years. But I swear, <laughs> I swear to God, when I got called up to the big leagues for the first time, I had like kind of like it wasn't like outrageous. You know, it was like kind of shaggy, not long hair, but just kind of like shaggy. You know, like looked like a little guy from California. I walk into the clubhouse in Fenway. I walk into the manager's office to like say, "Hey, I'm here. You know, good to be here." Terry Francona sitting there with Theo Epstein, and the first thing Terry Francona says to me was what's going on with your hair and and had i had i been like quicker on my feet i'd be like you're the one who talks you have no hair but that was the that was my welcome to the big leagues it was like what's going on with your hair and theo bless his heart was like i'm pretty sure that's how it always looks and i was like right on theo thanks man oh tito was jealous for sure yeah man so my hair has been an issue in professional baseball Right. Well, let's yeah. close with something, you know, may, maybe a little bit different. And, and this is short. Would be easy to ask either of you things like, who is your all-time favorite player? But, hmm. but that's too boring. Who would each of you pick for a favorite or favorites in another profession? Oh, you know, wow. Be it, be it music, literature, you know, art, you know, whatever your, your passions may be. Like our favorite of any of any of them? Yes, of, of any. Who, you know, who stands out? Who, you know, what are you into? Who are you into? I'll say uh, maybe Ricky Fowler and Rory McIlroy. I'm like obsessed with golf. So my uh, second career will be an LPGA professional in the senior tour if I ever get around to it and learn how to play golf. (laughs) 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 But um, I'm a massive golf fan. So I feel that, you know, and I'm just a huge Rory McIlroy fan and huge uh, Ricky Fowler. So I feel like those, you know, if I had to pick one, it would be Rory. Ah, okay. And what about you, (laughs) Lars? I would love to, if I could have like a dinner conversation. I would I would love to to hang with Ezra Koenig, who's a singer from Vampire oh, Weekend. That's and, awesome. Uh, Amtrak, who's a he's a house artist, and I'd also like to hang out with Malcolm Gladwell. I think I would enjoy a dinner with him. I love it. Maybe this can be set up a table with the two of you and the five people that that you mentioned. Right on. <laughs> That'd be I'm great. in. I'm in. And I'll volunteer to be the sixth. Whether. Hey, I, I was just gonna say, I'm, even if they, even if they're not there, I'd be happy to have dinner with you too, anytime. Yes, I, I'll, I'll, I'll take, uh, I'll take Dave and, and Lars too. <laughs> yeah, this is right. fun. Yeah, I actually didn't think of this for myself, but I might go with Brian Eno. Nice. <laughs> oh, I like that. That's cool. Yes. You and my dad would have something in common. Yeah, super. Hey, I think we're running well over time here. So Lars, Marley, thank you both of you for coming on to uh, Fangraphs Audio. That was a lot of fun. It was great. Thank you so much for having me. And finally, for me to learn how to pronounce your last name correctly. Because <laughs> really, I just keep calling you in Spanish, Laurila. And that's it. That's who you are, like, forevermore. <laughs> that's not what it is? You and Robert Ford are the two people who have brought that up subject on Fangraphs Audio. Hey, everybody, thanks for listening. Hello, listeners. Fangraphs lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen here for another Fangraphs audio segment. I'm joined by second-time guest and frequent carpool partner Bill Mitchell from about a mile up the road in Tempe, Arizona. How's it going, Bill? Going fine, Eric. How are you today? 
I'm doing well. I miss the field already. I do too. Yes, I do too. <laughs> we, Bill and I, uh, spent the last month doing the thing that we typically do this time of year, which is which is an amazing thing to say, which is seeing as much minor league spring training action as we can. It was a little different this year because of the way that it was staggered compared to big league spring training, which actually was kind of refreshing part of it. It was like a silver lining, I thought, this year, Bill, where rather than having minor league spring overlap with the big league stuff and having the backfields kind of clogged with just wandering tourists who have sort of accidentally found their way back there, it was just kind of library-like and and quiet and perfect. Yeah, we, we got a whole six weeks of major league spring training, and normally I would cut off after about three or four weeks and go do minor league spring training. This time, they were separated, so I did my six weeks of big league spring training, five weeks probably more like, and then had three weeks basically of minor league spring training. It was great. So yeah, for those who didn't listen to our first discussion like several months ago at this point, Bill is a photographer. A lot of the stuff he shoots, if you're a collector of baseball cards, a lot of Bill's work is on there. He shoots for Baseball America and uh, does the Royals and Mariners lists for for BA and has done a bunch of different stuff for them in the past as well. And those were two of the orgs that we saw a lot of over the course of the last month. And we're we're going to talk about a little bit about them today, but more just a general year experience this spring. Uh, You've been doing this for a long time. Can you think of any specific reasons that this was different? I mean, obviously the COVID piece, but the things that it's brought about, it was nice that our attention wasn't diverted from big league spring training while that was going on. And I think I probably did more of that in person this year than I would in a typical year because of the lack of overlap and because fewer people were traveling here and tickets were readily available. I'm the type of guy who just last minute looks at the pitching matchup and will buy his own uh, ticket to that sort of thing. Uh, what was your what was your experience like? Well, of course, as you said, minor league spring training was different, and and there were facilities that were not allowing scouts, were not allowing media, so we didn't get into those. But the fact that there was minor league spring training, which a year ago I got one minor league spring training game, so just to have anything was better than last year. Right. Yeah. Some of the teams were not allowing scouts and or media. It was some. It was a combination of both, and some. You know, like scouts were allowed at the Goodyear facilities with Cleveland and Cincinnati. And at times, the Salt River facilities, the Angels, I think, were the Angels allowing scouts? No, they weren't. All right. So the Angels were sealed off to everybody, but you could see them on the road, right? Like the way the minor league spring training schedules were made, you know, some of the teams were still playing on the road in places that you could see them. So you could still scout the Angel system, just not as well and not at their place. What do you think some of the reasons for teams sequestering the the minor leaguers was? I mean, obviously the pandemic is numero uno, but like in, in our case, there are maybe five total media persons who cover minor league spring training at all in person. And I think we're all vaccinated at this point. So, but yeah, what do you, what do you perceive and in, in your discussions with the scouts that we talked to who are doing this stuff too, what are some of the reasons people wanted to seal off their complexes? That's a good question. I've been wondering that myself. Do teams want to hide players and not get a lot of exposure to other organizations from their players? Or was it just easier to do it that way? I don't know. That's, yeah. that's What's your opinion on that? I think that the second one, it's just like you have to, because of COVID, you have to have a process and you have to have protocols and you have to have the people to 
implement them and then carry them out. You have to have someone taking temps or you know checking people in and making sure that people who have if you've applied for a credential that you get one, you know, that type of thing. And it's just easier not to have anyone do that, to just be like, no, media can't come and not have to worry about doing that stuff. I do think that's more likely the the cause. I think that some of the shared video from last year's alternate sites was detrimental to some teams because of what it allowed other teams to do from an advanced from an advanced scouting perspective. Like last year, the, all the scouts had nothing to do. And so if your alt site activity was on film, especially if it was live, like the Phillies just broadcasted their stuff every day. And it made it really easy for the teams to advance them because, you know, scouts had nothing to do. And so they put them on that stuff. And because the schedules were so condensed last year, it was even more impactful. Like if you scout for the Blue Jays and know you're going to play the Phillies a couple of times and that that's going to make up an outsized portion of your schedule more than it would in a typical year. And they're super easy to advance and you do that. And so I think that maybe the team's apprehension to let us in and to, and to let scouts in is some extension of that. It's some like, yeah, we don't, we don't really know. We want to know what we have before the rest of the industry can. And as you and I saw at the Cubs well, not at the Cubs place because they also were disallowing media, but what we saw from the Cubs players this spring is, I think, an example of, wow, look at how much all these guys have changed. And I don't want like, I don't want the rest of the industry to know that they've changed basically at the same rate that we as an org are realizing that they've changed in a big way. Like, can you... Is there anybody else like that? Like who are some of the players who, you know, from this spring have like come in and looked like a lot of guys are just throwing harder, like guys in their mid twenties. I was going to bring that up. It's that's the the comment I got from scouts most often is how many pitchers were coming in throwing 95 or above where, you know, they've, they had to redo their reports. What they wrote on this picture, even a year ago or two years ago, they had to redo the reports. Uh, That's the amazing thing. And uh, I know you and I saw George Kirby at different times. He's Mariners, uh, one of their top 10 prospects, uh, first rounder out of Elon, what, two years ago. I'm losing track of time now because of missing a year. But uh, when I went to see him, he was up to 100 miles an hour. And this is a guy with probably some of the best control of any pitcher in the minor leagues. So that's what really blew my mind is uh, how many how many pitchers were just throwing harder? Yeah, so Kirby, Kirby was in the upper 90s before the shutdown last year. It was just like in the bullpen. So it's like that, yeah, it seems to have carried over. This is part of, this is the piece of it too that I don't know what's going to happen is, all right, now they're about to go every five or six days. What does that start to do? Yuri Ramos with the Cubs, who's another like big body guy in his his early 20s, really fantastic frame, who was like 91 to 94 maybe the last I saw him, who was like 97, 99 the one day, and then down in quotes to like four to seven the next time out. Like just the long layoff for some of these guys, I wonder if they're coming out really hot in a way that is because of the rest. I may have told the story on this podcast before. Joe Savory, who was the Phillies' first round pick out of Rice, you know, he was he was injured a lot in college, and the Phillies still it was like one of those like his stuff is so good, let's take him and try it. 
like the middle of the back of the first round. And he played two ways at Rice, and his velo tanked in pro ball. He he rose through the minors, and he got to AAA, but it was like in the mid-80s, and it just wasn't working anymore. And so they asked him, all right, do you want to try hitting now? Like, this isn't going to work. And so he went to clear water, and he hit, and he didn't pitch for a while. And then something happened, like an extra inning game or a blowout or something, and he had to pitch. And after not having thrown for a long time, like his velo had come back. Like he resurged again as a pitcher just because seemingly of rest. And so I wonder if that's going on with all these other guys. But yeah, Kirby's interesting. If he can hold it, then, you know, that's a, that's a pretty big deal. Where he belongs, like what kind of move you make with him on like where you value him or as to when you make that move, I don't I don't know. That's tough. I think it's a question that we're going to be asking about a lot of guys this year. Who were some of the other dudes who really blew up for you this spring who like you and I were in the same place a lot of the times, but who were some of the dudes who really look good? Another interesting one to talk about is Alec Marsh from the Royals because very timely because your Royals prospect report went up today and I interviewed him for an article in Baseball America. I interviewed him a few months ago and I knew that his velocity had gone up last summer, both when he was in the Constellation Energy League and then later when he went to Kauffman Stadium for fall instructs that he was up to 99. Now, you and I saw him a lot during the years because he pitched at Arizona State. And what, what was his top velocity that you remember at ASU? I want to say that he would, every once in a while, he'd reach back for like a six. But for the most part, he was like 91, 94, and a lot of ones and twos later in his starts. The thing that was appealing about him is that it was like, look, it's a West Coast pitchability guy who's like pretty polished, you know, performed. It was like, remember Brett Lillick and Ryan Kellogg from when Mm -hmm. I first got here? He was not really any different than those guys. And now all of a sudden, he's really different. When I interviewed him and I said, where did this come from? Was it anything you changed with your delivery? And it was, no, at the beginning of the pandemic, he thought, okay, what am I going to do? And he decided uh, he was working out at a facility and he decided he was going to strengthen his core. He was going to do, you know, weight work and just get his body in better shape. And he attributes it all to that. And I'm sure that was a lot what happened with a lot of guys they couldn't throw, you know, yeah, maybe they were throwing up against something in the backyard or whatever, uh, or in a park, but they spent a lot of time working on their bodies. And I think that was probably as much as anything that contributes to everybody throwing harder. Now we'll see if they keep it. You're right. I hadn't really connected those dots before. Definitely Marsh looks different in his uniform now. Like he is big and strong in a, a really different way. It was noticeable on the center field camera during like he pitched in one of the big league games that was televised and yeah, he looks jacked. And then Max Bain, the Cubs righty, who they signed out of indie ball. He's another one who's dropped like, I don't know, I think it's close to 50 pounds. It's been written about, just worked out really hard and lost a bunch of weight and is throwing like 10 miles an hour harder. You read my mind because I showed up at a Cubs game this year and a scout said, make sure you watch this Max Bain. And, you know, the name didn't mean anything to me. And I thought, okay, yeah, well, yeah. but he's a big, strong guy. And I think he was touching into the high 90s. Uh, where did Max Bain come from? I know you can read it online, but uh, uh, that'll be an interesting one for, especially the Cubs fans out there to, to follow and see where he goes this year. He's a little bit older, I believe. You, do you have the, the information on him? He's 23. He went to Northwood University in Michigan and was four years he, he pitched there. Undrafted after his senior year in 2019, went to the Northwoods League, 
and was throwing hard there, but basically couldn't throw strikes. I couldn't throw strikes there or in indie ball also in 2019, uh, which is like, I think, I don't know which indie ball league it was, but I know he wasn't throwing strikes there. And so, yeah, like totally transformed his body, started throwing really hard, uh, was six to eight and held it deep, like four or five innings in a minor league spring start that Bill and I are both at this year. And Two good breaking balls. They're not consistent, uh, especially the slider. The shape of the slider is really inconsistent, but it always has length. And his curveball is plus. It's you know power low to mid eighties with you know vertical depth, and it bites pretty hard. It's a, a lot of hitters are not comfortable standing in there against it. You know they'll they'll kind of keel away, and then the thing will dart down towards the zone. And if he can start to land that for strike one, then then they might really have something like that's where I think. He can start. Did see a changeup, saw one changeup that was not well located. Uh, I was back and forth between that field and a, and a second field, as <laughs> are you most of the time in the places mm-hmm. that we are. That's the other thing is you and I prioritize a lot of the lower level stuff. The reduction in the minor league affiliates has has slimmed down. Uh, typically, there'd be like the triple and double A teams at one place and then the high and low A teams at another place. Like if the if the Astros play the Nationals, two, the higher level affiliates will be at one team's location and the lower level will be at the others, like JV and varsity scheduling dynamic in high school sports. And this year, it was just became more efficient for us to be at the lower level ones because that's where there were two. That we only had three like groups of teams this year. Well, and also I avoided most of the double A games because if there was a good prospect there, I probably saw them in a major league spring training game, you know, yep. like with the Royals, Nick Prado and MJ Melendez and Suli Matias and uh, those guys. I saw them in big league spring training, so I didn't need to go see them again. I wanted to see the younger guys. So that's that's uh, why I spent most time watching A-ball. Yeah, what are some of the other shorthand for us now and it really is sort of second nature especially to you what are some of like your tricks of the trade as far as like the way you have been scheduling yourself so far this spring because you haven't done anything out of state yet like we haven't made a socal trip or anything like that no but i'm getting anxious to head over there i'm i really need to find a good schedule for the cal league i went on the cal league site and there was no schedule for 2021 i went the whole league schedule but uh, i'm going to give it a few weeks and let the them settle into how they're handling media how they're handling fans and then hopefully uh make that drive i-10 to southern california and hit inland empire Rancho Cucamonga, and of course, Lake Elsinore, where we can also get tacos at El Unico before the ballpark. Yeah, El Unico is an 80. Yeah, and I've been trying to flex this part of my brain too, to go home and like see my family, but also see a lot of amateur stuff in the Northeast uh, in early June and mix it with the pro minor league stuff. Uh, Next week, I think I'm going to try to do... So like, here's an example. I want to go see Marcelo Mayer, UCLA... And UC Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara is far enough northwest of LA that it's kind of like a pain in the ass for me to get to. And so I want to see UCSB when they come south into LA or San Diego or something like that. Their entire weekend rotation is is interesting. Uh, Michael McGreevy looks like more like a comp round guy. Uh, you know, that it's a pretty typical comp round college arm and then you have like Rodney Boone who doesn't throw all that hard but has big time like carry on his fastball and then Zach Torr is a lefty who can really pitch and uh, like this is maybe a team that's going to deserve a regional like hosting bid so 
I might be able to see them then for something like that. But they play at UCLA next weekend. And so I think, you know, the schedule lines up for me to go see Mayer twice next week, hit one of the other LA high schools sometime in the middle of the week, and then see UCSB and UCLA over the weekend. It's like a home and home where they do two of three in LA and the other in Santa Barbara. And so the day that they're in Santa Barbara, I can just like see another SoCal college. And so, yeah, this is like a part of a thing that you and I haven't gotten to <laughs> to do for over a year right. at this point. But yeah, this is how the match, the, the machine is working again, right? Like I'm excited to, to get back to doing it. Uh, what were some of your most efficient, how many, what's the most games you saw in a day at some point during minor league spring training? Usually it was the, the two at a time. And then there was one day I did two at a time in surprise. And then I just went straight to ASU to see Stanford that night. That was probably my busiest day, and I was worn out by the end of that day because not just the rush hour drive from Surprise to the East Valley, but also just the length of time and how much walking back and forth I do when there's two simultaneous games. Right. You and I were at the same places. We were at the same areas in the same time that day, but we weren't like you went to the Royals to start that day, and I was on the Rangers side, and then I think we traded at some point. Well, I came over, I was trying to see TK Roby, but he only went one inning. And that was yeah. the day I think I saw, was that the Sorry. day I saw Ben Hernandez? And then you yes, missed, and I missed him. him. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was so, that day Bill and I each had eyes on nine rosters worth of players. No, 10 rosters worth of players. Stanford, ASU, and the lower level affiliates for all four Northwest Valley teams, Mariners, Padres, Royals, and, and Rangers. Yes. So that was the busiest, that was for sure the busiest day I had all spring to five games in a day. And this was, if this was a normal season where we could get into everything, I probably would have found a workout to do in the morning, but uh, which would have really knocked me out. Yeah. That's where you, yeah, that's where like, you're more apt to do that than I am, where if someone is going to throw a bullpen in the morning, that's the thing you'll go to because you know, you can get good pictures for like the baseball cards, right? Right. You know, you're on top of who's who's good so that you can preemptively, you just want to know if you can see someone who's going to go in the first handful of rounds, that you should just do it just in case they get asked for. Right. And like uh, I found out, I realized that Cal Baptist is coming into Grand Canyon in a few yeah. weeks. So I put that on the calendar because Cal Baptist has some draft guys. I don't know how big you know they are, but we'll see. And Cal Baptist, because they're still in that that stage where they went from Division Two to Division One, they won't be able to participate in the WAC tournament in Mesa at the end of the month. Right. So this, we this see is, them. yes, we should see them definitely. And then they have some guys, I don't know how high profile the guys are, but they've had guys drafted in the past. So it's somebody I've never seen. So th- that's a good one to try to see. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how that program evolves when Grand Canyon made a similar shift early on during the time that I lived here. They were one of the most talented teams in the conference almost immediately. And it felt really kind of bad that they couldn't participate in the postseason early on. And it's interesting that they've sort of come back to the pack a little bit. Maybe that year, things might have just been timed so well. Andy Stankowitz, their coach, seems like he does a really good job. We should probably both just get in there and see Pearson Ole at some point again, because he's dealing for Grand Canyon. I think he's got like multiple consecutive complete games or something like that. So we might have to get back in there and see him. But uh, what's the next thing on your... On your list here, as we said at the top, like it's over now. <laughs> What's uh, what are you doing over the next couple of weeks? 
Well, extended spring training is going to start soon. Uh, we've gotten start dates, and it's all over the map. But yeah. uh, I haven't gotten any schedules yet, other than I know there are going to be some games starting this weekend. So I'm right. anxious to I see. <laughs> I guess the 8th is coming up, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. this weekend. Uh, I'm eager to see what players, you know, now that the, what, 120 players per affiliate have gone out, and I'm guessing in that number, I don't know, 100 to 120. Yeah, whatever. The four affiliates worth of guys are out there. How many players are going to be coming in from the Dominican academies, and specifically what players? When the Cubs bring in new players, is Christian Hernandez, who was the top international player last year, is he coming in? Will the Mariners be bringing in Starling uh, Aguilar? Starlin, Starling, I forget what it is. Starling Aguilar, yeah. So will he be coming in? That's an interesting name to pull up. That's not typically the type of guy who I'm big on internationally just in that like broad strokes like I like the workout toolsy guys too you know I like the guys whose frames look like Christian Vaquero and and Christian Hernandez and you know like I like those guys and Aguilar wasn't one of those but now it sounds like he might be sounds like he's totally remade himself physically he's going to be one who I think is interesting for us to see also Bayron Laura Maximo Acosta who we didn't see all minor league spring, even though he's like of the age appropriate for that. Do you remember? Acosta was hurt. Just hurt? Okay. Well, all I got and asking a coach, and I didn't have time to have a long conversation because we aren't supposed to socialize with him. He just said he's rehabbing. Right. So we didn't see Acosta at all. I don't think Laura was even there, but I can't say that for sure. And I don't remember seeing him. I think we would have noticed him. <laughs> yes. Uh, Laura was in a serious <laughs> auto accident. Yeah. Uh, when was that about? two months ago, something like that. Yeah. So, so I would expect to see him. We don't know his situation, but uh, I'm looking forward to seeing Acosta. He was on my list to try to see, and hopefully by extended spring training, he's back in. They have a couple other names. there. I think that that system, it's maybe not the best system because they don't have like, they don't have a Juan or Franco or a bunch of like sixes or anything like that. But uh, I think it might be the deepest system in all of baseball is Texas. You know, my head was spinning there. Just with how with how deep it is, how many guys there are to see. Kai Noel Wineyard, Yossi Galan, Alejandro Osuna, Diane Florentino. Like these are other guys who I'm hoping come to extend it for them. Like they're just names to me right now. You're hitting me with names I haven't heard before. So yeah, yeah. these are guys that they signed late uh, last signing period. I, I want to say. Uh, they just exist as names to me right now. They're just guys who I thought the timing of their signing was pretty interesting. And I kind of want to get in and, and see them. But yeah, they have a bunch of like rehabbers and Tommy John guys. I didn't even see Brock Burke. but uh, And then their draft was kind of weird, right? Like Evan Carter was elusive to me even this spring. He's one where it's like, you know, I still don't feel like I have a great handle there. You catch any of those guys, uh, Sagisi and Voskiu and Roby, you said you missed because I, I wish I would have seen him warming up and told you earlier, but I just saw him when he came into the game and texted you right away. <laughs> I swear. I did see Carter quite a few times. I know you missed on him. And in fact, one day we were, when they were playing three games at Peoria, the low A ball guys were on the furthest remote field and you were on the other one. So I got to see Carter then. It's too bad you didn't come over yeah. and catch him. But hey, we can't be everywhere. Uh, Sagisi, I did see a few times. Foscu, for a man who I'd never seen before, I wound up seeing a lot of him then. And that he can hit. There's no doubt about it. He was their first rounder out of Ole Miss last year. And uh, I think 
he's probably, I, I bet he's gone to double, or I mean high A at this point. Foscu, yeah. So uh, he's um, like, if I had to pick a baseball team, a college baseball team right now to win the whole thing, it's Mississippi State. And they lost like two first rounders last year. <laughs> they had two, they had uh, like had a first rounder and a comp round guy on their middle infield. And they're still, I think, the best. Team. And then they had JT Ginn, who also was yeah, drafted, even Ginn. though he had That's right. TJ. Yeah, I, if I had to pick a team that they're, I think they're the best one. Have you any had any Pac-12 or ASU takeaways? Do you have any takeaways on the amateur side from what you've done this year? ASU has been an interesting team to watch. They've had some players do well. They've had some players haven't. They lost a lot of pitchers to injury. But I was just talking to a retired scout this morning who went to see them this past weekend when they played Rhode Island. And he started talking about the Aubrey Major, who hasn't hit well for him. He's a big 6'5 guy. He's a very good runner. But... My understanding is he had a good weekend. So is he putting himself into draft contention? I've, I need to talk to some of the area scouts to find that out. But uh, there's, you know, you look at the frame and the, the body and you think, wow, this guy, he, he should be something. Yeah, they have been really interesting. Multiple Tommy Johns mean that their Friday night guy is two low slot, like, relievers. They just, <laughs> the couple weekends I've been in there, their Friday night guys are like a low slot lefty and a low slot righty for like three innings at a time. And they're not doing terrible. Like I feel like they're in a postseason mix. They're not going to, we're not going to have a regional here. I think we might have to go to Tucson. I don't know if, do you think the facilities down in Tucson are, are sufficient enough to host a regional? They've done regionals in the past, but I don't know what the NCAA guidelines or standards are now. It's not a bad stadium. It's old. It's historic. So, yeah, they could do a regional there. I would just hate to be there on a sunny, hot, sunny day. Yeah, you are really exposed down there at High Corbett Field in Tucson where U of A plays. That's probably where where we'll be that weekend. I'm still kicking around this early June Northeast run to see high schoolers mostly and all you know a bunch of whatever pro minor league stuff is, is going on at that time and some of the draft league, but it might compromise a regional that's an hour and a half from my house. So I don't know. I'm still kind of kicking that around. It's fun to do this again. And don't forget, we we do have UCLA coming into ASU at the last weekend right, in last May. Week in May. And I know we'll be heavy on them. Plus, that's the same weekend as the WAC tournament. Now, the WAC tournament, unlike last year, right. when we would have had Nick Gonzalez playing every day for us, uh, I don't think we have any real high-profile draft guys coming out of the WAC tournament, but uh, we'll see. But you know what, though? The guys that we have seen there are still good and interesting, like Darius Vines and Austin Roberts, who are now with, who were with Bakersfield and Sacramento State, squared off against one another in like one of those, you know, whack semi games a couple years ago. And at the time I'm there, and it's like, you know, Roberts is, is 91, 92. His changeup's pretty good. His breaking stuff is not. And Vines, like, you can see it. You can see the carry on his fastball. And his secondary stuff is is okay too. It's everything's kind of closer to average, but he's really well built and he hopped around a bunch. Like they were both interesting, and they have both kind of popped. Like they're just guys like that. Roberts especially was thrown really hard in the fall. Now with Pittsburgh, so I I think it's absolutely like I have to stay here for part of the reason I want to go to SoCal next weekend is to get UCLA done in case that it does make sense for me to go to the Northeast that last weekend in May or to get out of town earlier that week because that's where like. A lot of the other conference tournaments have begun in the middle of that week. And because the Pac-12 doesn't do one, there's still just conference play that weekend. But it's nice to double up and get like a bunch of nice sleepers in the whack 
And then, you know, UCLA being here in town that weekend is, is pretty important too. So that's why like this Northeast trip for me is still kind of up in the air. But I thought about like going to Charlotte or wherever the ACC tournament is. I forget. I think it's somewhere in North Carolina. And then driving up Northeast and like hitting uh, Maryland and Indiana on a Friday night was going to be a good matchup for me. But one of those, one of those pitchers, McCade Brown for Indiana has moved to Saturdays now. Like th- this is what's been going on for the last couple of weeks is we're vaccinated now. So Bill and I have been going to games and I'm trying to go to more games because it's the best. I don't know. you have any parting thoughts, Bill, before we wrap today about minor league spring training? The one other thing we've got is perfect game tournaments coming up. There's one Memorial Day weekend. So that's another thing. One more parting thought. I want to talk about the best hitter that I saw in minor league spring training, and you can add to it. And that's Tyler Soderstrom from the A's. That guy was on base just about any time. And one time I saw him strike out and I was shocked. (laughs) <laughs> Tell me your thoughts on Soderstrom. So, yeah, he's also the best. He's the best player that I saw all spring as well. I have to talk to KG about this because we should just, you know, be in agreement on some of this stuff. But, like, for some of the last couple of lists, some of the information that I think is new is significant enough to move some guys. And, like, in Mackenzie Gore's case, it's probably to slide him a little bit. And in Tyler Soderstrom's case, I think it's to stuff him like somewhere in the middle of the hundred because yeah that is he's the best hitter I saw all spring it's not even close he's better than Robert Hassel he's better than you know Justin Foscue he's better than all these guys running deep counts not chasing at all targeting pitches he can drive until he has two strikes even when he's jammed he's strong enough to like rip balls through the three four hole Oppo power, like several wall ball doubles to all fields for me, definitely is built unlike most of the other guys. Like to see him, if we had to, here, let me pull up the A's list real quick. I'm going to give you a list of A's players and you tell me, order them just in the in the way that you think, boy, this guy's built like a, a big league player. All right. Soderstrom, Robert Poisson, Nikki Allen, Brian Buelvas, and Austin Beck. Put them in order for this guy. This dude is built like a big leaguer from top to bottom. I'd probably put Beck first. I know he's struggling. So the, the baseball skills haven't developed like uh, like they hope. But he looks like a ball player when he's out in the field. Uh, Nick Allen, I love the kid. I love watching him play shortstop. He's a at least a 70 defender. Maybe he'll be an 80 defender someday. Uh, but he still looks like a youth out on the field. Right, yeah. Poisson has gotten stronger. Right, but there's definitely something. I think that Beck is up there. I think it's Soderstrom and it's not close, but it's also like, like Buelvas, for sure, like Allen and Buelvas are of a sort where they are just kind of undersized. They, mm-hmm. Their skills are amazing, and I think that it's probably enough that they're a big league player, but it's hard to see them as like a real impact guy. Whereas like Soderstrom to me, Poisson is big and for a teenage shortstop and someone who's like going to stay at that position, probably he's like a big, impressive looking kid, but Soderstrom, like his body is, he is like super duper strong for someone his age that one day we did see him take a, a foul ball off his shoulder, like that missed his padding and got his shoulder square. Oh, I wasn't there that, but I, I saw the text message about it. Yeah. There's a group text with scouts that Bill and I are on. And yeah, that was, I put that out there in the text. But anyway, yeah, like the question is, how long do you leave him back there? But he's he's so advanced as a hitter that I think it's totally justifiable if they go, you know what? 
this kid's going to be a star, even if he's a right fielder. Like, let's just do this. I think it makes sense to try third base first. I guess they that, that has been tried in the past. Maybe I've seen some of that, and it's in my notes. I saw him play one game at first base during minor league spring training. Yes, we saw him at first base during minor league spring as well. But I'm talking about, like, as an amateur, I think there were some... Like, let's try this at third base and maybe it happened at some point, but I don't, I don't recall seeing it. If I did and it's in my notes somewhere, I don't recall it off the top, but yeah, he's, he's awesome. Like of the handful of things that I think should change about how players lined up this off season for me, like on the hundred, he is absolutely one of them. Like he's, he's awesome. There's one more thing we have to resolve besides his future position is the pronunciation of his last name. I've always said Soderstrom. And, you know, I remember when his dad was playing AAA here in the Phoenix area in Scottsdale Stadium, and we always called him Soderstrom. I've heard several people say Soderstrom. And I did ask the administrative genius at the A's, uh, Nancy, who is one of the best people in baseball, how to pronounce it. And she said, she wasn't sure. She said, I just call him Tyler. She just has to type his name. She doesn't have to. So that's something we need. Maybe before the next podcast, we'll come back with an answer. Is it Soderstrom? Is it Soderstrom? My general rule of thumb is that the vowel sounds within someone's name should be the same. So to me, then that makes it, I want to say Soderstrom because it sounds like SodaStream, but it might be Soderstrom because the O's have the same vowel sound then throughout his name. So like most languages that aren't English stick to this principle where like most vowel sounds, unless there's some sort of mark, you know, make the same thing, I think. Don't listen to me. I'm, I know about baseball players, not linguistics, but that's my rule of thumb. So I've been trying to say Soderstrom, but I want to say Soderstrom because I like a good soda stream. And with that, this has been another Fangraphs audio segment check out bill's work over at baseball america a lot of our listeners probably already have baseball america subs uh, or get the magazine and sometimes it will be adorned with photos that bill has shot as well as articles that he has written and then radiophoenix.org if you like blues bill's weekend radio program blues bites is on saturday mornings out here in the west coast probably more midday for you east coasters anything else you want to plug bill no it's just my left brain right brain thing baseball and then talking about blues and organizing programs. I love it. Well, let's uh, huddle on a potential SoCal trip next week. And if not, then we'll hit some, some fresh, hot, extended action this weekend. I'll see you out there, buddy. All right. Thank you for having me. This has been Fangraphs Audio. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure to check out our merch page in that newsletter and keep an eye on our Fangraphs Live Twitch channel. Jason Martinez is streaming the Roster Resource Show every Wednesday at 4.30 Pacific, while all of our archive shows can be found anytime on twitch.tv slash Fangraphs Live. We hope that your favorite team is doing well in the standings, or at least in the projections. We will be back next week with another episode. Have a good weekend.